Welcome to r slash, a podcast where I read the best posts from across Reddit. Today's subreddit is r slash malicious compliance. Our next Reddit post is from Bree Potato. Brief backstory. A couple of years ago, I was in an apartment with my friend and younger sister. My sister was violent towards my friend and I, and I ended up having to get a restraining order against her. She brought in a dog without permission, which caused some damage to the unit. I informed my landlord of the incidences of violence and the damage and sent him pictures. He basically told me to deal with it myself, which I did by getting a protective order. After this, my roommate questioned the legality of holding us responsible for her portion of the rent. I told her it was legal, but she asked our landlord for a copy of the lease to show to her uncle anyway, which admittedly was pretty stupid. Up until this point, our landlord hadn't asked us to leave due to my sister's actions, but he did after the lease was brought into it. We were out by the date he specified on the notice to quit. My roommate was there until midnight, making sure the place was spotless. We moved to an apartment across the street. Two weeks had passed since our landlord was informed that we had vacated the unit, and we hadn't gotten anything regarding our security deposit. In our state, a landlord is required by law to either return the remainder of the security deposit within two weeks or provide a letter itemizing what the deposit was used for. If they don't, the tenant is owed the entire deposit. If the withholding is willful, the tenant is owed double the original deposit. The landlord had actually told me that he would be going on vacation immediately after we vacated, so I returned our keys to him and waited to see if he would send anything. He never did. After consulting with the tenant's right group to be sure I was in the right, I sent a pre-formatted letter 16 days after we vacated, which related to the specific laws regarding security deposits and gave him our current address to send either deposit or receipt to. The day after I sent this letter, I see him across the street frantically running into the apartment for the first time since we moved out. I receive a text from him saying that he would return what's left of our deposit if I could get the apartment rented by the first of next month. I responded by telling him that, as the letter I sent explained, he forfeits the right to keep any of the deposit after the two weeks is up. He responded saying that he would see us in court, and that we were nightmare tenants, and that this'll be fun. He said that he would also be taking us to court for the cost to relist and rent the apartment, which he claimed exceeded the amount of our deposit. After about a month or two of hearing nothing back, we decided to say F it and file a small claim suit against him, as he clearly wasn't going to follow through on his threats. As the person who had almost all communications with him, I was the plaintiff in the case. He brought in a letter that was dated for the day he texted me where he arbitrarily wrote in what he used the deposit on and claimed he sent us the letter. That obviously didn't add up, which I thoroughly explained to the judge. As he had texted me that day saying that we would get some of the deposit returned and that he had no proof that he actually sent that letter. He clearly just wrote it and printed it out for the court hearing. During the court hearing, he also said a lot of false and victim-blaming BS, such as implying that I participated in the violence that occurred, saying that we caused damages that were definitely there when we moved in, and just attacking my character in general. The judge ruled that the withholding of the security deposit was willful and awarded us double the deposit. But, of course, that wasn't the end of it. And a few days before his deadline to pay us the money, he sends me a text just letting you know that the decision has been appealed. I didn't answer and showed up in court again, and lo and behold, it's more mudslinging and arguing about things that were already established in the first hearing. The judge upheld the original decision, and he eventually mailed me the check for double the deposit. In the memo line on the check where you write the reason for the payment, he wrote, For gaining 20 pounds. 
But hey, I cashed that check and spent my half on a new gaming laptop, so I'd say I got the last laugh. I desperately wanted to text him and ask him if it was as fun as he thought it would be, but I resisted the urge. OP, you're a better person than me. I would have sent, you're right, that was fun. Our next Reddit post is from Lagudat. I work in a data center, and obviously, every day presents itself with something new. Sit at a desk all day sometimes, yep. Crawl across ladder racks running fiber the next day, yep. Therefore, you dress for comfort and any situation, which is generally jeans, t-shirts, sneakers, and for me, a fleece jacket because it's cold as balls. Many years back, our boss informs us that his boss and a few other VPs are coming in for a tour and we need to be dressed up. His boss is new to him and he wants us to make a good impression. But when we asked for clarification, he didn't have an answer. Just look nice. Cue malicious compliance. There were only five of us working in this location and three of the four guys had tuxedos, the other one a nice suit. I had a, <laughs> I had a great floor-length formal gown. So on the day in question, we arrived earlier than usual in our spiffiest duds. When our boss arrived, he straight panicked. He was convinced that this would not go over well. We calmly explained that he's the one who told us to dress up, and we had. Plus, there was no time for us to change before the tour was going to arrive. A few minutes later, his boss rolls up, and the five of us, plus our boss, are in the lobby to greet him. Our boss is terrified. He came through the door, took one look, and almost fell over. I've never seen anyone laugh so hard in my life. He insisted on taking pictures of and with us and said it was the best thing he'd seen in a long time. Our boss, of course, then switched gears and acted like he'd been in on it and thought it was hilarious too. Okay. Our photo made the second level's wall and even went out during a team meeting a few weeks later. It's still one of my favorite work memories. Our boss was much more succinct going forward when he wanted us to dress up. Then, down in the comments, we had this story from Dave Hitz. I worked at a Silicon Valley startup that had a Halloween dress-up tradition. The new CEO was hired to save the place and was not aware of this. He chose that day to schedule a company tour for a potential investor, a large Japanese company. The Japanese visitors were so confused when they showed up and the receptionist behind the front desk was wearing a gorilla suit. They completely freaked out when Bob, who worked in IT, walked through the lobby in full scuba gear, walking backwards as one does when wearing swim fins. In the end though, we did get that investment. Our next Reddit post is from Flavor D. I have a former boss who used to be a youth pastor. He clashed with the head pastor over a number of things. The one I can remember was telling the boss that copying Microsoft software was stealing. This was back before Microsoft had install keys on everything. He finally brought up too many things to the board of trustees or whatever and was fired in one swift move. No notice. Just get a box and pack up your things. He couldn't get a final check out of them because they had a big administrative shift and everyone thought it was someone else's job to check or something. He went to the labor board finally and the labor board person said, So tell me about this job. I run Sunday activities. Weekdays I plan activities, make calls, kids visit me. I fill in other duties during the week. During summers, there are camps, in-house day camps, overnighters, beach days, etc. So, were there days you worked more than eight hours? In the summers, so many, but that's the job. I knew that when I took it. You don't seem to understand that your hourly rate doesn't qualify your employee to count you as salaried. You're owed overtime for all of these extra hours all those years. 
So by doing things the correct way, he got an extra $40,000 from the employer. And down in the comments, we have this story from DowGeek. A company I worked for years ago did this to many of their help desk techs. They put them on salary and told them they weren't eligible for overtime because they were salaried, even though they were under the income threshold. They were often pushed into working double shifts because they had to be there during the day to support users, but they had to do all of their disruptive work after closing. After a particularly brutal quarter, one of the guys raised the issue with the state labor board and the company got audited. The dude got a check for like $32,000 in overtime for the previous year. Honestly, they had it coming. I don't see why this should be so hard. Just pay your employees? Our next Reddit post is from Thorn Pudding. So this one dates back from years ago, when you would fill your income statement manually, like with a pin on a form. In those days, in my country, we didn't have a withholding tax system. But, for example, in the year of 2007, you would pay your income taxes for the year of 2006. Of course, the form would come by mail pre-filled with name and details, and also some quite accurate amounts, because the state knows already pretty well how much you make. My family's name is a bit complex, being multi-part and with an unusual letter cluster in the middle. Mistakes are understandable, but you would expect the revenue service to be exact on that matter. Unfortunately, they weren't. They kept misspelling it every year on the form, and on all the subsequent forms they would mail me, despite my correcting it manually every year on my income statement. In black, then in red. Then in the following years with neon red sharpies. Then one year later, adding a sticky note. Then adding a whole letter. Then adding a letter and copies of my ID as proof, etc. But they weren't budging. It was quite irritating because the tax statement has to be shown on several occasions when you interact with the state administration or justice. Everybody would notice the discrepancy. Everyone was understanding that it was obviously a mistake from the revenue service, but it's still annoying on so many levels. The most basic of which being a matter of respect for my identity. After 10 or 12 years of them not taking notice of my notes and corrections, upon receiving a payment notice still misspelled, I went in person to my local revenue service office and asked to speak with someone about that issue. I made it very clear to the clerk that they were wrong. He was adamant that they were correct, like I wouldn't know my own name, and added, for good measure, that he couldn't change my name in their systems because he didn't have access to it, blah blah blah. I was having none of it. So, cue malicious compliance. So, you said you were positively, absolutely right about my name's spelling? The clerk agrees. I shall therefore stop paying my taxes. I am not the person on your forms. And there's no way you can come to me asking for that tax money since the person on your forms doesn't live at that address and, in fact, doesn't exist. The clerk's mouth is gaping open and his eyes are so wide open they're gonna pop out. But in case you need that tax money, you know how to write my actual name. And I left with a smirk. I actually didn't pay that tax installment. In those days, you paid your taxes in three installments over the year. Two weeks later, I got a reminder, without the 10% penalty normally owed for late payments, and with my name correctly spelled. I shouldn't have wasted so many Sharpies over the years. Our next Reddit post is from Amir Single. This interesting encounter happened to my father sometime in the mid-90s. My father is Malaysian, and my father worked as a civil engineer, and still is. 
He led the company's hydro department and was responsible for contracting supplies for its turbine project. Looking for a supplier, a good college friend of his was the managing director of a turbine company based in Texas, and he personally invited my dad to meet and survey some products at his company there for his upcoming hydro project. Now, the thing about my family, and most Malaysians in general, is that we're fluent in English. It's our second language. And with my dad studying engineering in Sunderland for four years, I could definitely say his English is way above others. So my father and some of his employees took the trip from Kuala Lumpur to Houston, and the first thing they faced when entering the company's lobby was this American lady at the reception. She looked at my father's Asian complexion and condescendingly tried to take on a stereotypical Asian accent to attempt to communicate with him. My dad's co-workers behind him were all like, oh no she didn't, and were bracing themselves for the inevitable comeback at this racist remark. Then, my dad smugly decided to play along and conversed with her in Asian broken English for roughly 15 minutes, just to mess with her. Just as she was reaching her limit with him, her boss came down to the lobby and enthusiastically greeted my dad from afar with, Yo, OP's dad, you made it! My dad dropped the Asian act and returned his greeting out loud in completely fluent English. Confused and embarrassed, she became speechless and her face turned bright red in silence at the situation. Her boss invites my dad upstairs to his office for the meeting while my dad's workers were holding in their laughter as they followed him upstairs for the meeting. My dad later told his friend about the whole situation in the lobby and the friend profusely apologized for her behavior, but my dad was a good sport and had fun messing with her. Later that month, my dad came back for another meeting and found out that his friend took no excuses from her and fired her that very same week for basically insulting their foreign customers. I think firing her was totally the right call, but not in the sense of like, haha, she deserved it, but in the sense that this was an international business-to-business transaction that involved turbines. So, <laughs> I don't know what the going rate on an industrial turbine is, but I would imagine that that lady's racist attitudes could have cost her company millions, maybe tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. So, yeah, if I were her boss, I would have fired her on the spot. Our next Reddit post is from Hallie Justin. A year back, my ex-father-in-law took me to court for an incident that happened five years previously. While he was still married to my mom, I dinged the door of his car with my Jeep. At the time, I offered to buy a new door and help install it. He's a self-proclaimed mechanic and had the know-how. But the project fell to the wayside. The door was never purchased and never brought up again. That is, until his daughter and I had a falling out and we divorced five years later. So I got served and taken to court for 2000 bucks, which was a made-up number that he felt was adequate. During mediation, I offered him 1500 bucks and to never contact me again, which he scoffed at. So I told the mediator I'd like to go before the judge. I informed the judge of the deal and found a matching door from the scrapyard for 400 bucks. The judge took my side and granted my father-in-law 400 bucks. It was incredibly gratifying hearing him throw a fit in front of the judge and him telling the judge to go ahead and file an appeal now. And then the judge told him that wasn't his job. And while walking out of the courtroom, he angrily yelled at me that he would be seeing me again. I still haven't heard back. That was r slash malicious compliance. And if you like this content, then follow my podcast because I put out new Reddit podcasts every single day.